Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm very pleased to say to help us navigate these markets, Howard Ward, Gabelli Fund CIO of Growth Equities, joins us around a table in New York City. Howard, it's, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Talk to me about what on earth is going on. First of all, we're scared of inflation and higher bond yields, and now um, we just shake it off and put a big bid into equity futures in the United States. Yeah, I would, uh, I would be careful because... Uh, if rates continue to rise, the stock market will not ignore that. So we can get a bit of a momentum surge here. And as we rebound from the 10% correction of the last week, but uh, I'm not sure this is a rally that you can truly trust. And 294 on the 10 year now, what's the next, uh, the next move? 3%. Um, 3% has correlated more with a, a forward multiple of earnings of 15, not 17. So uh, the stock market will pay attention. The day-to-day volatility is very hard to get comfortable with, uh, given the extreme levels that we're seeing, and knowing that there's a big momentum trade that's behind this. Another, a lot yeah. of it has happens to be algorithmic and and computer generated. So Howard, let's be clear: we've come from just over two percent on a U.S. ten-year in early September to almost three percent on the screen just several months later. Are you saying you would fade this rally in U.S. equities? Yeah, I think we're you know we're late cycle. This is the longest uh, bull market, second longest bull market in history. If it were to continue to advance um, to September, it would be the longest. It's the third longest economic expansion. It's almost the second longest. So we are very late cycle. It's the time of the cycle where growth, defensive growth, which outperformed ten out of. 12 months last year and for the year overall. Defensive growth has done well. It's continuing to outperform. That's late cycle stuff. And the next move is you really have to get you know, even more protective of your equity positioning and start favoring lower beta names and stocks with higher yields. I'm not saying we're there yet, but that's the, that's the handoff we're going to make. We're going to pass the baton from the defensive growth stage of the market to the need for stability and yield as a protective measure, as yield becomes a bigger component of equity equity returns. Now, maybe it takes six, nine months for that to play out, but that is the next phase yeah. we're going to enter. You know, just to simplify this, and by all means, you can add some nuance to it, but any baton that passes in markets, any regime change whatsoever, usually is accompanied by elevated volatility. Do we just assume that this is a now a, a higher volatility story from here, Howard? Yes, I think so. I mean, the, the, the complacent bull market of 2016, 17, if you will, mostly 17, 16 wasn't that complacent, was really driven by, you know, <laughs> the ongoing, extremely low interest rates, a slow and steady economic growth. The slow and steady diet fueled the bull market of the last nine years. Yeah. And now we've reached a point where maybe slow and steady is not where we're at. Uh, given where what rates are doing, given the concerns about inflation, so volatility is back, and also, you know, I would say that the upside return on stocks is limited this year. I think the reason, one of the reasons, the market snapped when it did <clears throat> ten days ago was we were getting up against the ceiling for expected returns for the year, and for me, that's twenty nine seventy five on the S and P, which represents 70, 17 and a half times my projected earnings, not for this year, but for next year 
which would be about $170. And so as you get closer and closer to, let's call it, let's round it up to 3,000. Yeah. That, I think, is the most you should yeah. be expecting from stocks this year. And there's no margin there. If you get any slippage in the multiple or any yeah. disappointment in earnings this year or next, your returns will be lower. Did you guys survive Valentine's Day? Did you get through it in one piece? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. John. Valentine's Day was that was. Do you know, I I learned gosh, that, that every yesterday. day is Valentine's Day. Is that right? <laughs> is that <every> day? <laughs> I think Valentine's Day. <laughs> I'm going to keep you out of trouble today. <clears throat> yeah, that uh, move on. Just Howard, move on. Howard Ward with us with Gabelli <laughs> as we try to talk economics and finance uh, here and say good morning to all of you. Howard, you and I have talked before about the makeup of revenue. I thought one of the most important single lines last year was Honeywell shifting organic revenue growth up a couple figures from 5 6% up to 7 8%, whatever the numbers are. But revenue is made up of unit growth and price growth. Tell us what Gabellian Company sees about the partial differentials, the dynamics between price lifting and units lifting. Well, Tom, I don't think there's been a lot of pricing power for most companies, uh, and, and there still isn't. I mean, it's still a the world we live in is one of uh, you know uh, limited pricing power. So now the question is, are are we at an inflection point where companies are forced to pass along higher prices in order to maintain margin? And I think there's a case to be made that we are entering that phase that we do need to be concerned that, hey, the good news is the economy is strong. The bad news is the economy is strong. So we had, yeah. for most of the last nine years, bad news was good news and good news was good news. And now we may be getting yeah. back to the phase where good news is bad news. I mean, this is fascinating is, is the, the tea leaf, if you will, John Farrell. And of course, the collective memory of when units actually happen but there was no pricing power. Good morning, Mr. Welch. Hope you're listening uh, on that theme from a long time ago. It's such a big theme for the equity market investor at the moment because a lot of people would say we're accelerating now into supply constraints, capacity constraints in the United States. As you look at things, Howard, who is that a bigger problem for as you break down the equity market? Well, I, I just think, Jonathan, at, at the from the, the, the macro level, you know, the focus is just going to be on the overall rates of inflation, regardless of where it's coming from. So uh, I, I think that when rates, as rates, let, let's take the, let's assume that we're going to get a little bit more inflation and we're going to get a little bit more higher interest rates. From a stock investor's perspective, that's going to become a bigger, the biggest problem is going to be for industrial companies, materials companies, and energy companies. They're going to take it on the chin first. And I, 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 I think it's amazing today when you look at the multiples that people are paying for high-quality industrial companies where you, you, you can find any number of them selling at 25 times forward earnings, and that's not trough earnings. This is extremely yeah. rare. In my 40-year career, I don't know if I've ever quite seen it like this before, where people are so ready and able and to recommend and buy industrial stocks at, 40, at 25 times forward earnings when you have to think back and really what you want to do is you want to buy 
these more industrial stocks at cyclical lows, when people hate them, when the earnings are depressed and the PEs are high because of that. This is exactly the opposite time where people feel good, and so they're recommending these stocks, and it might be the wrong thing to do. Howard, you'll have to forgive me for describing you in a word, but after having a conversation with you for the last 10 minutes, you sound quite bearish. Would that be an adequate description of where you stand right now? You do sound quite bearish yeah, no, on this market. Well, no, I'm, I, 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 I'm not saying go out and sell stocks. I'm just saying expectations, I think, have gotten too high. Uh, they've maybe gotten yeah. been, been tempered a little bit in the last week. We, we got a knowledge problem here, Mr. Ward, in that Mr. Farrow doesn't even understand pitchers and catchers, <laughs> let alone how lousy the New York Rangers are this year. John, Mr. Ward is a diehard New York Rangers hockey fan. I they, wanted to go to a game are, at Madison Square Garden. Who, I could not believe how expensive the tickets are to watch well, the Well, that would hockey. be true. That's it's, a separate it's issue. Called a, it's called a $1,000 evening. Mr. Farrell, who's in last place in the Premier League? In the Premier League right now? I can't. I, off the top of my head, I don't know. Whoever that team is, that's, that's, that's the, the New York Rangers. That's the Rangers. That's why that Howard. That's the backstory. On so why I called. Howard I called is, Howard bearish, and then yeah. you bring up his um, poor, poor New York Rangers. Well, the Rangers, well. if they were a cyclical stock, you would buy them now. <laughs> okay, they can't get any worse. They Howard, can only go up. Howard Wards, the Gabelli Fund CIO of Growth Equities. With- I got an email uh, this morning. Actually, we had a bunch of emails on this horrific tragedy in Florida. A couple people said, you know, it's horrific to see, and we're seeing it and hearing it and reading it everywhere, and thank you for trying to stay on Bloomberg Surveillance Themes, and frankly, other people saying, you know, you've got to touch on it. We have a gentleman now where we can do that. We can do it because, well, he's heard the sound of gunfire. Terry Haynes is with us with Evercore ISI, and is some of you know, Mr. Haynes was uh, very nearby in the neighborhood the day where a congressman was shot in Washington not too long ago. And it's wonderful that Mr. Scalise is doing better uh, as well. Mr. Haynes joins us here. And to politicize this but do it in a way that I think is balanced, Terry Haynes, I think our global audience and our national audience would like your observation with your decades of work on how the NRA fits into the lobbying fabric of Washington. I don't want to do pro-NRA. I don't want to do anti-NRA. Just how do they fit in? Are they at the Willard Hotel smoking cigars? Are they up on K Street? How does the NRA fit in to the new Washington where we have these tragedies after tragedies? Well, uh, good morning, Tom and John. The, uh, it, it fits in, you know, there, there are, you've heard me observe before, I think, that you, know, you can always look at uh, what I would prefer to call purists on either side of an issue. And, uh, and you know, and I'm not going to be pro or anti-NRA Thank either. You. But, but, the, uh, but, but the NRA is, uh, is, is a purist in its interpretation of the Second Amendment and what gun rights mean and all the rest. And there are purists on the other side, and the purists on the other side suggest that uh, the Second Amendment yeah. really doesn't uh, really doesn't mean anything, and that guns ought to be regulated and banned wherever possible. Uh, so yeah, so it's there's there's quite a prof- quite a profound uh, 
difference of opinion on the polls. Right. And in the middle, of course, is where you end up dealing with the well, nitty-gritty issues of, uh, of uh, registration and who can buy what and all the rest. So, some, some, of uh, us, and, and, some of us, Terry, literally yesterday afternoon were whispering across living rooms trying to protect children from this news. And within yeah, that, yeah, I do that. Is, I do that. I do that every day. You do that every day, and oh, within, sure. within this is within one hour, within forty minutes, there was the obligatory news zeitgeist talking about these Congress people getting money. You know the usual stuff we see every sure. time this endless tragedy occurs. Does the NRA throw money at politicians? Do the politicians ask for it? How does that happen? How does the money move? From the NRA to the political establishment. Well, it's uh, it's 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 done. You know, both on the NRA and on the other side, it's it's done in the conventional way. It's done through fundraisers. Just, just it's done through yeah, dedicated <clears throat> fundraisers, all the rest. Uh, and there's you know, and I think one thing that is not so well understood about Washington Please. generally is that the. Uh, there, there's an there's an impression that money moves and therefore uh, opinions change. And uh, former Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott always liked to say that, look, you know, people are giving us people aren't giving us money to change our minds. People are giving us money because uh, they agree with our positions. Uh, you know, and like so. So in many cases, whether you're on one pole of this argument right. or the other. Uh, you're you know, you're already there before the money is uh, the, the before money comes comes to you from uh, from people with right. those points of view. One final question on this before we move on. Terry Haynes with us with Evercore ISI, and and I go back to the horrific uh, moments in Arlington with our congressional delegation at that baseball uh, field, and that's the idea of when there's a policy shift. In, in, and again, Terry, you and I agree yeah. to stay out of the debate. But do you detect a policy shift of any order uh, after this horrific killings in Florida? Uh, I don't yet. Uh, and that's in part because uh, because the Senate has been so focused on trying to get something going on, uh, something going on Dreamers and, uh, and uh, border security this week. But I think it's possible. You know, there there are a lot of people that have been trying to bridge that gap for some years. And in the Senate, yeah. I would point to a a bipartisan uh, uh, group uh, with its core uh, Republican Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, right. uh, who, who uh, ever since Sandy Hook have been trying to move uh, move some things on registration and uh, and whatnot, and it may well be that uh, that that something coalesces oh. around them. I think there's going to be a desire to want to do it, and of course, uh, of course, uh, many of these folks have an election year right. staring them in the face, and that always concentrates the mind as well. It does concentrate the mind. And Terry Ains, we greatly appreciate your comments after this, uh, these events, this tragedies, this terror in Florida, Mr. Haynes. I believe we have fiscal affairs, a tax cut a new budget, and then a budget proposed, et cetera. Do you have any idea where we are now? Are you awaiting fiscal analysis like John Farrell and I are? <laughs> awaiting it? No. Uh, you know, as, as you well know, uh, we produce an awful lot of it. So, yeah. Well, uh, what have you produced? You know, where, where's the decimal point on one trillion? Uh well, our, our view has been that fundamentally, I mean, I think the, the, the thing that uh, that matters here the most is that, the, yeah, there will be a slight uh, deficit increase, but 
you know, you're, you're going to have uh, between the tax cuts and uh, and this action, should it should it be uh, put into effect by a full year spending bill, which we think is very likely, uh, you know, you're going to end up with uh, 70 to 80 basis points of growth. Uh, so, you know, and uh, we're to the point where Ed Hyman uh, told our clients last week that, you know, you've got a, an economy that's already strong and accelerating. Uh, inflation's moving up slightly, but still moderate. And uh, and he's considering lifting uh, his yeah. U.S. real GDP forecast from uh, plus three to plus three point five. This so, is important, John, and that I met with Mr. Hyman at length in that Christmas special. That I think it ran over New Year's yeah. Eve. And Ed yeah, Hyman yeah. was at three percent at that time. He is nailed mm-hmm. trying to get out front of this politics. So Terry, let's say we get to three percent. Ultimately, we're trying to understand whether you can grow the deficit away. Can you grow the deficit away? Um, you can you can limit it to you you can limit it to some extent. You're not going to eliminate it, though. I think uh, I think even the Trump budget, uh, frankly, acknowledges that. I mean, you've got a you know it's always been a point of Republican orthodoxy that uh, budgets are submitted and budgets are, are political documents inherently, but that uh, the budget would balance at the end of ten years as a result of whatever policies, and uh, and that's not the claim. Uh, we've never we never thought that Trump was a conventional Republican, and so he's proved not to be. Yeah. But uh, uh, but you know for the for the White House to take that sort of step, uh, it, I thought was significant. We've had way too much op-ed on this um, situation with the deficit. A deficit has become incredibly politicized. Terry, as you see yeah. things, just looking at the trajectory of this deficit, is it a deficit, a fiscal situation, a scenario? in the United States that is becoming out of control, or is it still in control? Uh, well, we thought it's in control. I mean, what's, the, what's, the, but what's disturbed a lot of people is that the, uh, the, there has been an assumption for, for years. I would, I would challenge this to some extent, but there's been an assumption for years that uh, uh, Republicans are the party of uh, eliminating deficits and you know, bringing government spending into control and all the rest. And uh, you know, now there's perceived to be some kind of a blow through uh, on the deficit. Uh, I, I got to tell you personally, I don't quite see it that way because uh, a little context is important. What you need to remember is that in late 2015, the last time we had one of these two-year budget deals, uh, the government spending went up by almost $100 billion over two years, uh, firstly. Uh, so, you know, there, there have been increases ever since. And, you know, when you get down to brass tacks on this one, you take disaster relief out of this. Essentially, it's a $200 billion increase over two years uh, divided between uh, defense and domestic right. spending. Uh, that's a lot of things, but it's not quite the uh, it's not quite the terrible budget busting that uh, the, that I think well, a lot of people claim it is. Terry Haynes, thank you so much with Evercore ISI, the perspective there on better economic growth from Mr. Hyman, and of course uh, gentle comments on the tragedy and the terror in uh, Florida. This is the interview of the day for Global Wall Street. Tobias Lefkovich of Citigroup. Tobias, what does your uh, proprietary surprise index say now? Are we surprised the crisis is over? Are we surprised we're buying shares today? So our panic euphoria model, actually, um, which is our primary sentiment model, had gone into euphoria territory 
back, call it around Christmas time, and it stayed up there. Interestingly, last Friday, it had it did not drop out of euphoria. In other words, investors still want to buy the dip. There, there's not that much fear in the market, even with the wild gyrations that we suffered the past couple of weeks. Not enough fear in the market. Why did we go to fifty on the VIX then? So manipulation. I. I uh, you know, I don't want to get you in I've, trouble with your general counsel, <laughs> yeah. but come on, fifty. You know, we went we went from you know under ten um, and spiked. I will tell you that if we looked at we, we something we track also top fifty names by market cap in the S and P five hundred, which count for about half the value of the S and P. We watch their what we call interest stock correlation, how they've traded relative to one another over the past twenty days. Um, and that had dropped down to 2%. In other words, they were thoroughly uncorrelated. Nobody was worried about macro fears at all back in, call it November, December. And now it's up over 50, you know, in, in, in a matter of a week or two. So there was this kind of level of complacency, short, short, you know, short term. We spiked, and that's why I say the volatility picked up. Um, Part of, partially because of the incredible swings we saw of you know mm-hmm. 1,500 points on the Dow. Um, but have really people changed their general outlook? The idea is robust, yeah. synchronized global recovery, and we're still okay. I want to barbell an important question. To retail, with the urge to go to cash, how do you respond? Cash doesn't really earn you a whole lot today. Um, you know, if you're worried about inflation, which certainly the PPI gave another reason theoretically yep. today to worry about, you know, if you look at the history, bonds are a tough place to be. Cash can kind of hold you even, but equities can do well because companies can raise prices. So you, you need to think about maybe more real assets versus financial assets in that in terms of how you position your portfolios. You might want to be more materials and energy and some value areas versus the growthier names that have been, you know, benefiting, if you like, from very low mm. rates in terms of the compounding of the present value calculation. Same question. The institutional person in it, they're managing to a benchmark. They're behind. They're behind a little. They're behind a lot. It's February. They got to catch up. How do you catch up on a sector transition basis? Where do you come out of? Mm-hmm. Where do you move to? So our sense is you've got to move away from the growthy areas, technology, healthcare, and move towards the value areas, including financials. Energy. What's a multiple differential there? Between Are we going from a 21, 22 down to a 16? You might be going in some instances from a 60 multiple to a 30. I from mean, a six zero to a three, three zero. zero, yeah, wow. in, in, depending on certain companies where you sure. have, you know, very very hot growth prospects. Think of cybersecurity, cloud stuff like that, and then you have companies that are industrial that might be trading at twenty five times earnings. They've moved up in anticipation of cyclical mm-hmm. recovery, but earnings will probably be pretty good for those companies as the economy gathers some steam. First time I've asked this question this year. We can do that. Every day is Valentine's Day, including February 15th, and that is sell in May and go away. Let's get a head start on that right now. After the drama of January and February, how do we come up to the next earnings season? I think the next next several earnings seasons will be pretty good. Because you've got this economic backdrop. One of the things we watch and we think got really lost last week was the senior loan officer survey data from the Federal Reserve Board. As everybody's focusing in on the volatility in the markets, they didn't really pick up on the fundamentals. And when we look at specifically the commercial industrial loan lending standards, they actually eased further. So despite the fact we've had Fed rate hikes, et cetera, 
the financing ability for businesses is okay. even more attractive. That's usually a good nine-month lead indicator for industrial production, for GDP, for manufacturing, okay. for cap capitalization, for employment, margins. So profits should be good and be supportive right. of markets. So that's chapter three of corporate finance. Unfortunately, chapter four is a demand side of that equation. Is the demand there for the better supply of C&I loans? So this is kind of the very interesting debate. And it's one of the reasons we think banks are still attractive is that most investors believe that we've gone to kind of the shadow banking system. We don't need the traditional Agreed. banks. I loved what Axel Weber, he's at a small Swiss bank called UBS, <laughs> Heard of him. said the other day, the market-based finance system. I love that. And I don't deny that people are using capital markets and other alternatives on in on the online spectrum. But if you want to do very big loans, M and A related, you know, billion dollar type projects, if you want to look at capital investment in mines, in new semiconductor plants, et cetera, you're talking again eight, ten, twenty billion dollar type investments. You can't go to those places right away. You need the syndicates. And there's about a six quarter lag, and this is pretty important, between the changes in those C and I lending standards and changes in actual C and I loans. You are at the inflection point now. What we saw late last year was the, if you want to call it, residual of a very messy credit market in the first and second quarter of 2016. And now you're looking at a very different game. So I, I think that's going to be the surprise mm -hmm. that CNI lending really picks up. Do rising rates change the Lefkovich view? Rising rates are part of the Lefkovich view, so they don't change our view. One of the things, again, that people, I believe, are kind of missing or too busy focusing on incorrectly um, is when they look at the inflation data, they look at, for example, commodities, prices moving up. I think it's legitimate. I think you're, it's fair to look at, at currency issues. What they're not looking at is the U6, U3 unemployment gap. Okay, so U3 being the traditional number we always yep. see, the 4.1. U6 includes marginally filling workers. Slack and all that right. from Cherry Yellow. So when we look at this over the last 15 years, so we've got, quote, unquote, the Amazon effect in there, what we see is exactly where we should be on, on wage rates. In other words, wage increases are exactly where they should yeah. be based on that gap. But that gap is going to shrink meaningfully this year, and wage pressures okay. are going to grow further. And I saw a great chart. I'll give Zero Hedge credit. I can't remember where, but I saw a great chart exactly to your point. That, that wage growth is really where it should be. Mm -hmm. It's quadratic, or is it a jump condition? When you when you get finally wage growth, does it happen in sixty days, or does no? It, it takes longer? it'll take six nine months. But I think you're going to see something from where we were at kind of a two and a half percent rate yeah. of growth to probably closer to three and a half or higher. And the bond market has to adjust to that as well. And corporates will try to raise prices where they can, because yeah. sixty percent of corporate cost is labor. So they've got to figure out a way to increase their, their margins. They don't want to eat that. Uh, Tobias, i got bad news. we got a huge audience in Montreal. I learned this <laughs> years ago. And Phil from Montreal emails in and says, please ask Tobias about the national heritage that is the Montreal Canadiens. When they, when they lose, all of Canada loses. It's worse than the Maple Leafs, actually. 29th <laughs> in offense. Twenty Folks, there's only like 29 teams. 29th in office, 24th in defense. Their penalty kill is 23rd. I mean, this is a Canadian disgrace, isn't it? It's the worst record, I think, since the 1940s. It is depressing as all hell for us Canadians fans who grew up with, you know, the greats of Guy Lafleur and Yvonne Cornway and Ken Dryden. And I love Carey Price, but uh, Mr. Bergerman's got to put some better people well, in front of him. I may ask you the same question I asked Governor Carney by the Espresso Court in Davos. <laughs> Does Governor Carney have to make a, an intervention, leave the Bank of England, 
and attend to the national heritage of the Montreal Canadiens. I think he does. And if he wants to call me up to join him, I'm right there. My wife might not like moving to Montreal, but I would enjoy it if it was for the Canadians. Very good. That's a surveillance <laughs> I will, I will say this. Keep in mind one other issue. It's not just the Canadians. Five of the six Canadian teams aren't in the playoff race right now. Ottawa enjoying near last place as well. It's five of six teams are not in the playoff race right now. It's a now. national outrage. I think it's a surveillance break exclusive, folks. Carney and Lefkovich, starting with the Montreal Canadiens to bail out Canada and their hockey. We're going to bail out this discussion. Tobias Lefkovich will continue with us. Pim Fox has been taking notes, and I know he's got a lot of sector and company issues as well that Mr. Lefkovich... We finished strong on international relations uh, with the Trump administration, with Secretary Tillerson uh, gallivanting or traveling through the Middle East from this country to that country. And we do it well with the author of False Dawn. He's with the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, Stephen uh, Cook. Stephen, uh, Turkey seems to be front and center right now. Our relationships with Turkey. Let's begin with domestic Turkey. Would Mustafa Kemal Ataturk the Ataturk of the early 20th century, would he know his turkey? Uh, He would not know his turkey. Um, The Justice and Development Party, which has been in power since 2002, and its leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's now the president of of Turkey, have done much to unwind um, Ataturk's vision. Um, It's not to say that Ataturk was right about everything. He was certainly no Democrat. Yeah. Um, but there is a, a heavier emphasis on religious values in, in Turkish public life, uh, something that, that Ataturk certainly wanted to stamp out. So within that, the Secretary of State and his team, and as you mentioned to me earlier this morning, he travels small, they have to greet Turkey in the coming hours and days. How will they be received by Turkey? Uh, Probably the best way to describe it is extremely cold. Um, There is a tremendous amount of uh, mistrust between Washington and Ankara now, Um, much of it stemming from uh, the United States' uh, working relationship with a Syrian Kurdish fighting force uh, that has been instrumental in uh, killing a lot of ISIS guys and retaking uh, territory from the Islamic State. But the same group, uh, the Turks regard to be a terrorist organization. Uh, and uh, from the Turkish perspective, the United States is willfully undermining Turkey's security by arming this Syrian Kurdish fighting force. Mr. Cook, can you explain the relationship that Turkey currently has with Russia and what that would mean for future investments in Turkey, specifically in the energy industry? Well, Turkey and Russia have grown closer over the course of the last few years. Uh, One of the reasons is because the United States has essentially written itself out of the Syrian conflict so that when President Erdogan needed some power to help secure Turkey's interests in Syria, there was really only one place for him to go, and that was Moscow. Um, there's also uh, a small, relatively small but influential uh, group in Ankara that would like to see the flowering of relations between 
Turkey and Russia based on geography, based on uh, kind of historic double standards with which Turks perceive the West dealing with Turkey. So um, there is going to be and already has been uh, an increase of investment in trade uh, across those borders. uh, And energy is is one of those one of those things. Well, in that context, right, I mean, you know that the uh, the Turkish government has already announced the purchase of Russian S-400 surface-to-air missile systems, and yet Turkey is a stalwart member of NATO. Um, in fact, uh, they've just announced that they're going to purchase a second battery of the S-400. That's uh, the news this morning from, from Ankara, and I, would, uh, I think we should think about the use of the term stalwart uh, when we think about Turkey in in NATO. It's a a difficult relationship between Turkey and its Western partners. There are not too many uh, in Turkey who believe that uh, Belgian soldiers will die for Turkish security. And uh, given the fact that the United States is quite obviously the dominant power in NATO, and the United States is working with uh, a group that the Turks consider to be a terrorist organization. The relationship between Turkey and NATO is is quite tense and and uh, and fraught. I don't expect that the Turks, though, will remove themselves from right. NATO in the same way that other countries have in the past. If we have so many guests, and they, you know, Stephen Cook, they have a political bias. I guess we all do. But there's an attitude that the Trump administration and their foreign policy, the way we project when we show the flag is we got to get our act together. How urgent is it to Stephen Cook that the secretary in his travels, quote unquote, get his act together? Well, it's I think it is what the secretary of state is encountering on this trip uh and it's been difficult in almost every place he's gone, except perhaps for Egypt. Um, I think what it reflects is a, a real change in in the world, in, and particularly in the Middle East, where countries used to wait for American permission to do things, used to consult with the United States before undertaking action. And um, after a very uh, long and difficult, almost two decades in the Middle East, um, the United States, from their perspective, seems spent and distracted, and distracted by its own politics. And so countries in the region are taking matters into their own hands and pursuing their interests regardless mm-hmm. of, of uh, American views on what they're doing. And Turkey is a, actually a perfect example uh, a perfect example of that by exploring its relations with, with Russia, um, by uh, moving militarily into Syria, even though that undermines what the United States is trying to do in, in Syria all at the same time. So um, it's a very different world out there that Secretary uh, Tillerson is is confronting. Well, Secretary Tillerson uh, is certainly no stranger to oil politics, and Turkey is the largest, uh, I should say, the, has made the largest pledge to fi- help financially rebuild Iraq. Uh, the United States is really nowhere in this $100 billion attempt to uh, rebuild Iraq. What would you say, if things continue the way they go now, can you fast forward for us maybe four or five years, what does Iraq look like and what happens to its oil and energy reserves? Well, I'm generally pessimistic about 
uh, Iraq, um, regardless of how much money has been raised at this reconstruction conference that was convened in, in Kuwait, uh, there was actually a kind of a bidding war going on between Turkey and the United Arab Emirates over who was going to, who was going to, uh, do more in, in Iraq. But I think it's less about the money, less about the investments that, that countries are, are willing to make and more about the politics in Iraq. And until Iraq gets those politics right and until it resolves this kind of system of spoils that the United States in an unintended way created and has crippled and hobbled and, and encouraged corruption in Iraq, uh, it really doesn't matter how much money is invested. A lot of it is going to mm-hmm. go to waste um, because of this, this rather surreal system yeah. of spoils that's been set up in Iraq. If you wrote an epilogue now to your false dawn, where would you tilt it within your analysis of the Middle East? Well, first I'd say I was right. No, I'm kidding. Um, I think what I would say is that we are looking at a long-term, uh, a long-term yeah. instability in the region uh, based on kind of deeper historical and sociological factors that are really beyond, um, you know, the traditional tools of American diplomacy or Russian right, diplomacy right, or right. European diplomacy. I mean, what I found this so telling. I, honestly, folks can't remember the blur of travel where they just instituted tourist flights, I'm going to say from London, British Air, down to Tunisia. And it was just one of those little glimmers of recovery of, in this case, tourism in Tunisia, which is a beautiful country, which has been in some ways shattered. Are we, are we making headway against the anger and the terror of the Arab Spring and its fallout? I think that, you know, the, the return of tourists to Tunisia is quite obviously a very, very good thing for Tunisians. It is a beautiful country, uh, and Tunisians really have made more progress than, than others in, in the region. But until uh, the, the, the Arab world writ large resolves issues related to the kind of internal contradictions about the way in which their societies are ruled, a way, a way in which their economies are set up, um, about their, the very identities of, of these countries, um, Tunisia and other countries will remain quite fragile and racked yeah. with uh, violence and instability. Stephen Cook, thank you so much. Very generous of you to be with Bloomberg Surveillance today. He is with the Council on Foreign Relations. Can't say enough about his writings. His book falls on for a perspective away from the politics and the tinged debate of the Middle East. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.